produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Welcome to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahi. And I'm Yasmin Amr. So I want to start this week's episode with this government figure. On any given night in the U.S., more than half a million people are homeless. And it's especially a problem in the major cities. We're talking New York, L.A., even here in Boston. These are places that have some of the most expensive rents in the country. And one city that's seen some of the steepest rent increases in the country is Seattle. And that's where this story takes place. 39-year-old Hattie Rhodes and 44-year-old Andrew Constantino remember an awful moment back in 2013 when they looked at their rent increase notice and realized they couldn't afford to stay in their studio apartment. You know, we basically got priced out of Seattle while we're both working. Uh, We had had the same apartment for nearly a decade. And I'm thinking, okay... I mean, we'll find something within a month, within within two months. Something always comes up. We were just shocked that there was nothing affordable. And then it became like this crisis, right? To make matters worse, Hattie had just lost her waitressing job because the restaurant where she worked closed. Her boyfriend, Andrew, had been and still works as a community organizer. They bounced around, sometimes living on friends' couches, sometimes in shelters. They applied for affordable housing, but as a childless couple without serious health issues, they weren't exactly considered a priority on the wait list. I think that's when I reached my despair and I started to accept that, you know what, we're going to be homeless for a while. Their only option, if they wanted to stay together, was to move to a homeless encampment and set up a tent. It was hard. It was a hard sell, for sure, you know, because you have a lot of these uh, internalized feelings of failure. You know, that what will my family say? What will my friends think? You know, I'm staying at one of the tent cities, you know. It's like every you've lost everything. Hattie says she worried about the stigma of being homeless, so she kept it from employers and coworkers at her retail job. You know, here in Seattle, they think of, oh, everyone's on drugs, or it's a mental health thing. I don't have a drug addiction. I don't have a mental health issue. What I have is an economic issue that I cannot seem to get out of. Winter, with its unrelenting rain, was the hardest part of living outside. You are never dry, and that wears on you a lot. So, Getting up in the morning and knowing you have to put on damp clothing is really demoralizing. You just want to curl up and pretend like you're not in the situation you're in. And then go to work and pretend like, hey, yeah, I just, I got wet on the way to work just like everyone else. We were like, you know what, let's try to get a better situation than another winter in the tent. I'm just not... I just really don't want to do that another winter. That's when Andrew noticed several communities of tiny houses popping up across Seattle. He'd met some of the residents and the people building them. Builders like 69-year-old Melinda Nichols, who's the first apprenticed female carpenter in Washington. If you come to Seattle and you drive down the freeway and you look to the right or you look to the left, you will see tents all over the place. You will see homeless people everywhere. And it's shocking. And it's disturbing, and it breaks your heart. 
Melinda spent the last 20 years building affordable housing with the Low Income Housing Institute. But the nonprofit couldn't keep up with the demand. There's still more than 11,000 people on the streets. So about four years ago, Melinda and her colleagues had an idea. Why not build a bunch of smaller, less expensive units to shelter people until they find permanent housing? So they started building tiny houses across the county. I don't look at them as a permanent solution. I look at them as a temporary positive solution. Picture a small, colorful beach house the size of a tool shed, just big enough for a bed and a few shelves. Each house costs $2,700 in materials, and a group of five volunteers can build one house over a weekend. Melinda helped build the little blue house that Hattie and Andrew now live in. And I, I just looked around and went, oh, yeah, I can definitely make this work. This is excellent. I was excited. It's bigger than the tent that we'd been staying in. It's going to be dry in the winter, which was the thing that I was the most excited about. Hattie and Andrew live in a tiny house village of 50 people. There are shared bathrooms, a community kitchen tent, and picnic tables. The best part of living in the village, says the couple, are their neighbors. The same neighbors who volunteered to build a wooden porch for them. When you see that human beings of all different types can live together and will care about one another, it's, it's in like a spiritual experience. The couple has been helping manage their village since the residents have to put in community service hours instead of rent. I think I, I gain more self-confidence being homeless than I've ever had in my life, um, where I stopped worrying so much about what others thought of me because I realized that I have value to this community and therefore wider society. Hattie and Andrew have been living here for almost two years. They still don't make enough to afford market prices. They'd eventually love to have more space, maybe their own bathroom. But being in the tiny house village made them realize there is one thing they absolutely can't live without. A sense of community. Knowing the people around you, having peer-to-peer support is life-changing. Hattie says each house Melinda and other volunteers build is much more than four walls and a roof. It's an opportunity for people like her to rebuild their lives and their communities. We'll have more after the break. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahe. And I'm Yasmin Amr. So I really enjoyed reporting on this tiny house story. It was such an innovative way to help reduce homelessness. But I want to mention one more important benefit of this project. I spoke to Sharon Lee. She's the executive director of the Low Income Housing Institute in Seattle. And here's what she said. It has a dual purpose. We get the tiny houses very inexpensively. And people build them for us, um, volunteers and schools. Plus, it's a great opportunity to introduce women and people of color in the construction trades. So is a goal of the tiny houses to try to get underrepresented people to go into construction? So they want to at least expose women and people of color to the field. So some of the groups that Melinda Nichols leads are exclusively women. 
On the one hand, it's a very positive environment that proves to them that they can absolutely do this type of male-dominated work. And hey, if it leads to a brand new career and passion, then that's great. By the way, the plans for these tiny houses are available to anyone who wants them. They're on the Institute's website, and we'll link to them on ours, wbur.org slash kindworld, because, Andrea, I totally believe you can do this. (laughs) Well, Thank you. I am an IKEA furniture assembly expert. Well, that means you're like 90% of the way there. (laughs) So speaking of do-it-yourself, there's another project I'm excited about. And it's also a way to help people struggling with homelessness. And like tiny houses, it's also open source. So anyone can get the plan online and replicate it. Ooh, do tell. So this idea comes from Donnie Sandoval. She's a 57-year-old former marketing executive who lives in Oakland, California, and she was inspired to work with the homeless population in the Bay Area after seeing her former San Francisco neighborhood, which was predominantly middle-class people of color, completely change. Our neighborhood became super trendy. And as it did, we watched as three of our neighbors, all gentlemen in their 80s, get evicted from their homes and take up residence in their cars and one by one eventually have those repossessed. So sadly, Donnie says those men all ended up on the streets, and that shook her dramatically. So she started volunteering, and she says she was able to really see the unhoused population in San Francisco. And something she realized was just how difficult it was for these people to take care of their hygiene. In a city where there are 107 millionaires per square mile and now 75 billionaires, There were 16 shower stalls and about as many toilets for the 7,500 people who were unhoused in this city, according to the official count. And I just thought, that's just unfathomable to me. 16 shower stalls for 7,500 people. Those numbers are crazy. So what did Donnie's do about that? Well, Donnie started to think about how she could make a more meaningful impact. And she spoke with city government workers and activists and nonprofit organizations. And most importantly, she spoke with unhoused people and asked them what they needed. In 2013, she launched the pilot of her program called Lava May, which is a decommissioned city bus reworked and refitted into a mobile showering unit. And she said her project focuses on three major points that were communicated to her by unhoused people. If you are unhoused, you spend your entire life in the public eye. You never have a moment of privacy and respite. And so that was really important. The second was if you're a woman or LGBTQ, the incidence of attack in these showers is incredibly high. So safety was vital. And the last thing was that if you have a disability of some sort, you might find a place that accommodates your needs, but you're not safe, or you might find a place that's safe, but doesn't accommodate your needs. So being very thoughtful about that was really important as well. Donnie's calls what Lava May does radical hospitality. Because it's not just giving people the option and ability to shower privately and safely, but it's the way her volunteers treat people. Listen to this story she told us that shows just how powerful this project can be. A guest came up to me and he said, I have to tell you my story. He said, you know, I'd been unhoused for over a year and a half and I was at the end of my rope. I was really ready to just end my life because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I was walking around and I turned a corner and I saw the Lava May shower units. 
because I thought, you know, I've got nothing to lose. Why don't I just sign up for a shower? He said, and I, I went in, and he said, not only did when the water hit my body, did it wash away my dirtiness, but it washed away a sense of hopelessness. And in that moment, I decided that I was going to shower every single day that Lava May offered showers. And he goes, that's like now been three months. And he said, um, he stepped back from me and he opened his arms and he said, look at me now. He goes, I look fantastic, don't I? And he goes, I'm going to get housed next month. In addition to the mobile showering units, Lava May also hosts these pop-up care villages. And that's where volunteers come out and help people who need everything from a haircut to legal or employment assistance. And Donnie says these villages are incredibly helpful for the people in need, but they also make a difference for the volunteers. When you bring out volunteers to the street, people get those person-to-person, human-to-human connections, and they realize that our unhoused neighbors are people just like us. And so it removes a lot of the stigma and shatters the stereotypes. And I think for an issue like homelessness, you have to move people one person at a time. So is Donnie's thinking of expanding Lava May beyond her community? Yeah, actually Lava May is now in Oakland, in San Francisco, and in LA. But the organization wants to go even further. And the way they're doing this is by putting all of its startup information online as an open source toolkit. And Lava May has even partnered with big companies like Unilever to help fund their on-the-ground work. So they're essentially expanding by putting the knowledge out there, and then people can take that information and build their own mobile shower units wherever they are. Yep, it's about encouraging people to see the humanity in every member of their community, and then empowering them to create change right where they live. So check out lavamay.org to find out more. That's L-A-V-A-M-A-E dot org. Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Paul Veitkis and Matt Reed do our sound design, and Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Yasmin Amr. And I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahe. We want to hear your story of profound kindness, so email us at kindworld at wbur.org. Or find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WBUR Kind World. And please spread the word about Kind World by hitting that subscribe button. It'll help others find us. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.